knowing what you believe and why you believe it lies at the very heart of Christian experience, worship, and everyday living. The Bible's not about you. You're not David. Trouble in life is not Goliath. Jesus is going to be David in the shadow. Goliath is going to be sin and death. Who's that make you? Uh, and it doesn't make you the Israelites in the corner going, he's going to kill all of us. That's exactly who you are. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I, with body and soul, life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Gospel is that God the Son freely agreed to die our death for us, to suffer our deserved condemnation and doom in our place. And he didn't just agree from eternity to do it, he actually did it. It is fatal, fatal for us to think that we can ever move on from the gospel. The great problem in the evangelical church today where the scripture is concerned is not the inerrancy of the Bible. The great problem in the evangelical church today is the sufficiency of scripture. We don't think it's sufficient to do what we have to do. So we have to wake up to what's happening and recognize that the problem really is our lack of theology. Hi, welcome to Theology Gals. I'm Colleen Sharp and Angela Whitehorn is my co-host. And today we're going to be talking to Carrie Baldwin. We're going to be talking to her about um, Rachel Jankovic's new book, You Who. And just before we get started, I did want to mention Carrie is a fellow podcaster and she also has a, a website, Mere Liberty, and a podcast that goes along with that. Can you uh, tell our guests about your podcast and your website. And I think you've got some other things going on with Mere Liberty. Sure. So um, MereLiberty.com is, uh, well, I've had it since about 2012. Um, and my, my mission with Mere Liberty is to challenge and rethink our paradigms for politics, theology, and culture. Um, so I take a uh, reformed perspective I also take a uh, philosophically libertarian perspective. And uh, so I just talk about topics from those, those perspectives. And the idea is, is to uh, strip away the, the rhetoric that we're accustomed to hearing and talk about what these, these issues that face us today are actually all about. Um, so my official podcast or my podcast, uh, Dare to, it's called Dare to Think the official podcast for my website. And that's all about just sort of um, applying philosophy and, and theology where applicable uh, to these issues. My latest series is on uh, abortion and how we should be dealing with that as a society, whether or not we can actually say in a legal sense if, uh, if the fetus has rights. And so my latest two episodes are actually on something called fetal self-ownership. Um, and self-ownership is a concept in uh, libertarian legal philosophy. And so, yeah, that's um, without getting too in depth about that, that's, that's what the podcast has been addressing so far. Um, and this is, um, I guess, as a, a side note, my, my argument on uh, fetal self-ownership is actually relatively 
new. Um, nobody's really made uh, this sort of argument before um, in the sense that most pro-life arguments are from an ethical perspective and I'm taking a legal rights perspective. So at any rate, that's what that's what that's about. Yeah, check those out because she has some she has several episodes that have already been uh, published and she has some very interesting ones on abortion. So I, I will link I will link the podcast and the webpage and the episode notes if you um, don't remember the, the title. So the reason we're having Carrie on is this new book, You Who, by Rachel Jankovic, uh, has been very popular. So in the Theology Gals group, I think the week that it came out, there must have been 10 people that tried to post it in the group. And I'm seeing it around everywhere. I will say that Canon Press is very good at marketing. Um, they have videos um, with Rachel and, and different things. So I think it's become a pretty popular book in Christian circles. And Carrie has written a wonderful article about it, reviewing it. And it's it's quite long because it's so detailed. And I know even in the article, you say that you're not even going to get to every single thing. Right. But it is very, very detailed. And we'll get to some of those things in our discussion here, but we really encourage you to go and read the entire article, which we'll link in the episode notes. So just for starters, what what is it about? What is her book about? So her... She's writing to, Rachel's writing to Christian women about identity. And she takes a, she takes a perspective of identity, which, which basically says that this is sort of a, a construct of an unbelieving philosophy and that it's unnecessary for Christian women and not even unnecessary, but dangerous for Christian women to try and explore their identity. Um, and so the book is, it starts out the first uh, eight chapters, she starts out trying to uh, make an argument against some of the philosophies that she thinks are uh, contributing to a concept of identity. And then she spends, gosh, I think it's about 13 chapters. I've forgotten the number, but it's about 13 chapters explaining what Christian women ought to be doing instead of exploring their identity. And then her, her final four chapters are sort of trying to, to wrap all that up. Um, so that's what it's about. It's a lot of, it's a lot of saying, don't do this. Don't do X, Y, and Z. Don't do this, 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 you know, if you get trapped in this sort of mentality, then you need to do X, Y, and Z. That's sort of how the the book is set up. And as I understand it, Rachel sort of rejects in the book that as believers, we should be pulling any sort of ideas out of the world of philosophy. Is that right? Yeah, she gives a, she gives a slight nod to the idea that uh, a Christian philosophy can exist. Mm. Um, so I guess let me... Let me explain a little bit about what philosophy is. Yeah, that's where I wanted to go with this, is give our listeners just sort of a brief introduction to what philosophy actually is. 
Yeah. So uh, philosophy is the study of and formulation of theories about real reality and knowledge. So theories of reality are known as ontology and theories of knowledge are known as epistemology. So all the sciences, including mathematics, are derived first from asking philosophical questions about the physical world. Metaphysics is sort of those abstract questions about reality that goes beyond the physical. So that's where you get into the questions of who am I? And how do I know that I'm the same person today that I was 10 years ago? And then um, there's the field of ethics, which is just questions about the good life and, and how does one live the good life? Now, this is, how, this is how philosophy started, was under these three broad categories. It's branched out quite a bit. And Rachel talks about uh, some of those branches like nihilism and existentialism. Now, from a reformed perspective, and there's, um, there's a really good book um, which is an introduction sort of to uh, reformed philosophical thinking. This is an actual field of study, reformational philosophy. Um, so it is Calvinist in nature. And they talk about uh, two different concepts. They talk about a concept of structure and direction. So uh, from a reformed perspective, philosophy is the comprehensive scientific discipline which focuses on the structure of all things. So that's everything that is, that is in the created order. Uh, theology um, is the comprehensive scientific discipline which focuses on the direction of things, that is, on the evil that infects the world and the cure that can save it. So um, that book, by the way, I don't remember if I said the title of it. It's called Re uh, Creation Regained by Albert Walters. Um, and it's a great little book. I, I highly recommend it. And it's an easy read. Worldview. We've heard a lot about worldview. Worldview is a little bit different because it's not this scientific discipline. But much of what Rachel is objecting to as far as what she calls philosophy, she's actually objecting to various worldviews. So worldview is defined as the comprehensive framework of one's basic beliefs about things. So this can be both structure and direction, but they come before philosophy and theology. So think of philosophy and theology as these uh, scientific disciplines. Worldview is, is pre-scientific. It comes before that. Now, Calvin, John Calvin, and a lot of uh, Calvinists, I don't think, or Reformed Christians don't really know this. Calvin was educated in philosophy. He was also educated in law. And so, you know, his, his contribution is that he, he brings sort of uh, a phil philosophical uh, lens to theology. In fact, it's his knowledge of law that allowed us to understand the uh, legal definitions that we find in scripture, like uh, things like imputation and redemption and things like that. But, uh, you know, he saw, he saw philosophy as being a tool that the Christian can use in, in helping us to deal with, with theories. Um, and so that can be anything. That can be a theory in, bio in biology. It can be a theory in mathematics. It can be a theory in, in identity. So at any rate, that's sort of, that's sort of a basic overview of, of philosophy and a Christian perspective of it. In your, in your article, Identity, I mean, it's part of the title of your article, so that's really a big theme of what you're dealing with, and it's a big theme in her book. So how does Rachel approach the idea of identity in the book, and what are the concerns that you have with her approach? 
So she, she approaches it in a somewhat confused way. There's actually two ways of thinking of, of identity. The first is in the philosophical sense. And when we're talking about the philosophical sense, what we're really talking about is what makes you a person. So this is going to be your will, your consciousness, your mind, uh, sentience, that sort of thing. Um, and... Then there's the socio-psychological sense of identity. This is more of personality uh, and likes and dislikes and interests and skills and, you know, how you relate to the world and that sort of thing. And so, you know, when we're talking about uh, a woman, well, anybody, but, you know, in this case, a woman exploring her identity, really what we're talking about is the socio-psychological aspect of that. You know, if she's an an introvert or an extrovert, if she's, um, you know, skilled in one area over another, uh, if she has an interest in one area over another, those are all aspects of socio-psychological identity. So uh, Rachel doesn't actually parse those two things out. And she does use, um, she does bring up a uh, philosophical thought experiment. It's actually presented in, as a paradox, and it's called Theseus's ship. I don't know if anybody's heard of that, um, but actually, it was my first clue that that she had confused this. Just because I, when I took my three hundred level metaphysics course, I was also presented with this paradox of Theseus's ship as as illustrating. Uh, the problem with accounting for identity over time. So basically, you're asking a question, how can you be the same person today that you were 10 years ago because so much about you has changed? So that's really a, a personhood question. And the whole point of bringing up the paradox in, in terms of philosophy and metaphysics is to say that we don't know how to account for it, um, at least in terms of philosophy. Now, the Christian would come back and be able to say, well, we do know how to account for this, but we have to we have to dive into theology to to answer that. And so, you know, the Christian would say, "Well, this is where the image of God and man comes in, um, and how that actually manifests in in each individual person." So, then the second problem is is that she tries to define identity as meaning, and this just this just is not true. You can be a person with an identity and not have meaning in your life. And so those things just don't, they're, they're two different things, and she's trying to make them the same. Um, not to mention uh, that not everything in life has meaning. And, you know, for Christians, we can actually look at the book of Ecclesiastes, and we can see how uh, life sometimes appears to be meaning, meaningless. Now, the Hebrew word used in Ecclesiastes is is hevel, and that's something more along the lines of s- smoke or vapor. So, really, what the teacher in, in Ecclesiastes is saying is that whatever the meaning of life is, is something that you can't easily grasp. Like you think you got it, and then you go to grasp it, and it it disappears like smoke or vapor. So it's not to say that there is no meaning, but sometimes it's an enigma and we can't explain it. So she wants to be able to say, well, there is meaning in life, and we can know that meaning, and that meaning exists um, through your obedience to uh, you know, to the to the law of God. It's essentially what that that comes down to. 
Um, she also wants to talk about what identity is not. There's a lot of, um, you know, examples that she will bring up, such as physical features, you know, whether you're uh, overweight or not, or uh, whether you are skilled at a particular thing or not, whether you're whether you have an interest in something or not, and she tries to say, well, this isn't what identity is anyway. These are all distractions. Really, what your identity is is you're a worshiper, and she even suggests that you need to find your meaning. So this is no longer your identity. She's saying you need to find your meaning as a Christian in the stories of other Christians forgetting for the moment that in order to read stories about people like Corey Ten Boom or George Mueller, you're actually learning about their individual identity. So they had to have an identity in order to have a story for you to read about to begin with. So she just approaches the concept from a very confused position. I mean, if somebody is looking for a Christian perspective on identity, I would say, don't read this book. It's just going to confuse you. Um, so, you know, I just, uh, heard some of the things that you were saying, Carrie, and it kind of stuck in my mind that you uh, mentioned that she made a shift from um, identity to, you know, now you're a worshiper and it's something that you do. And it made me think, you know, that sounds a little bit like a category error or a philosophical error. I wonder if you picked up on some philosophical errors in the book, if there are any that you uh, could tell us about and talk about. Yeah, well, there's there's a lot of philosophical errors, but I guess the the relevant one uh, well, there's a couple that are relevant. The first has to do with uh, dualism. Um, so the first has to do with dualism. So Rachel takes this idea of identity and she posits a dualism in identity. Dualism is this idea that actually will uh, blur the lines between a duality. So a duality in this case that's that's applicable to what uh, Rachel's trying to say is the idea that we serve either the Lord or we follow idols. So that's a duality. But what she does is she blurs the, vali- the valid duality between obedience and disobedience. So there's a legitimate duality in, in Christian belief that you either serve the Lord or you follow idols. Um, but she turns this into a dualism by conflating it with obedience and disobedience. And so uh, this dualism then starts to identify obedience, redemption, and the kingdom of God with only one area of life. And it sees the rest of life as either unrelated to redemption or worse under the power of disobedience, sin, and the kingdom of darkness. So So there's this this idea that there's no adiaphora, there's, there's nothing that's of indifference, which is actually a concept that we talk about in the Westminster Confession is, and Christian liberty. There are matters of indifference. It's not simply this black and white um, situation. Um, and the other thing that she does um, as far as dualism is, is concerned is to speak about the soul versus the body. And this is something that has actually been very popular among Christian scholars in the past. And she says, uh, the Christian concept of the soul makes most of these questions uh, concerning socio-psychological identity irrelevant. 
the soul is not located in one place in your body, end quote. Um, and she's using Rene Descartes' concept of mind-body or, or what we would call substance dualism. And essentially, this idea of dualism has been resoundingly rejected by, by Bible scholars and uh, reformational philosophers. It is an idea that is derived from Greek philosophy all the way back to Plato and Aristotle, and it's just not something that is taught in Scripture. And the Reformed view on it is actually something called non-reductionism, um, the opposite of which is reductionism. So in a dualism, you're reducing everything down to two things. You know, whenever you, whenever you say uh, it all boils down to, what you're doing is, is making a reduction um, or a philosophical reduction. And that's not what we want to do. We don't want to say everything boils down to these two things. Everything does not boil down to either you're serving the Lord or following an idol. It doesn't all boil down to soul or body, that sort of thing. So those are, those are um, two areas in which she, she makes an error on dualism or concerning dualism. The other thing is there are two other philosophical concepts, and she doesn't talk about these specifically, but she's talking about their ideas, and that is the idea of determinism and free will. So determinism is the idea that you have no choice in who you are. You have no real choices in life. It's all planned from the beginning of time. And free will is the idea that you can create who you are, you have every choice available to you, and nothing has been planned. So determinism, and a lot of, uh, a lot of Christians have grab, tried to grab a hold of determinism because it sounds a lot like God's providence, but it's not actually Christian. In fact, um, Sam Harris, who's a well-known militant atheist, is a determinist. And what's interesting about determinism is that it gets, it gets humankind off the hook for sin. So we don't want to go overboard and say that everything is is determined and we have no choice in in anything. So the the reformed perspective on determinism and free will is essentially that uh, what we would call a compatibilist view. It's we would say that God's providence exists, but man's free will also exists within God's providence. So, you know, God has determined that uh, people can't fly. Right, so I can't. I don't have the free will to go fly, because God has determined that that that's just not going to exist. On the moral side of things, God has determined that um, you cannot murder somebody. I can actually make the decision to go murder somebody, but that decision is a violation of God's moral will. So that's sort of how determinism and free will are supposed to operate in a Reformed perspective. One reason why we shouldn't take this dualistic uh, or this, yeah, this dualistic approach to life is, first of all, it's not biblical. Um, and second, it confuses the structure or, or, you know, what we talked about philosophy. It confuses the structure and direction. It confuses philosophy and theology. So when Rachel talks about application, what she's saying is that Instead of seeing how theology runs through all of life, uh, you know, like the scripture verse, whether you eat or drink, you do it all for the glory of God, she identifies the directional or the theological with particular parts of the structure. So, like, some aspects of culture then become inherently disobedient, like the idea of exploring your identity. Um, she's, in, she's 
she's confusing the two, which gives you a distorted view of reality. And so that's why we shouldn't actually follow that dualistic approach. Yeah, you actually answer my ne- my next question. Uh, not the next one I'm going to ask, but I was going to kind of ask you to connect um, her philosophical errors with the idea of identity. But I'm thinking that people that are listening right now are there may be people out there, people maybe that even read the book and they're thinking, okay, well, I know maybe now how not to think about some of these things, but what do you Mm -hmm. think is the right way for us as Christians to approach understanding identity? Yeah, this is the best part. Um, (laughs) um, There's there's a quote that I want to read from uh, Anthony Hokema's book created in, uh, it's called Created in God's Image. So I'm going to read that quote right now. It says, man is not only a creature, he is also a person. And to be a person means to have a kind of independence, not absolute, but relative. To be a person means to be able to make decisions, to set goals, and to move in the direction of those goals. It means to profess freedom, at least in the sense of being able to make one's own choices. The human being is not a robot whose course is totally determined by forces outside of him. He has the power of self-determination and self-direction. To be a person means to to use uh, Leonard Verdun's picturesque, picturesque expression, to be a creature of option. In sum, the human being is both a creature and a person. He or she is a created person. This now is the central mystery of man. How can man be both a creature and a person at the same time? To be a creature, as we have seen, means absolute dependence on God. To be a person means relative independence. To be a creature means that I cannot move a finger or utter a word apart from God. To be a person means that my fingers are moved, I move them, and that when words are uttered by my lips, I utter them. To be creatures means that God is the potter, we are the clay, Romans 9.21. To be persons means that we are the ones who fashion our lives by our own decisions, Galatians 6, uh, 7 through 8. And that's the end of the quote. And I love that quote. And his Hokema's book, Created in God's Image, is a recommendation of mine. I think everybody should read it. I think it's great. But our identity um, exists in two different ways. First, it exists as individuals. We have an individual identity. And then we exist in relationship to one another in communities. So as individuals, we're uh, image bearers of God in our own right, not because of our husbands or other men in our life, but because God made us that way. God, God made us to reflect uh, his image. Now, sin obviously distorts that, but the way that I taught my kids to understand this was by using um, an analogy, which I'll try and describe to you. So I took my kids into my bathroom. There's no windows in my bathroom, and I've got uh, mirrors on either side of the bathroom. And I took a flashlight in there, and I shined. We, we closed the door, and I said, okay, can you guys see anything? And they said, no. And I said, okay, so I'm going to turn on this flashlight. So I flashed the light to the other end of the room, not on a mirror. And I said, okay, so, you know, do you guys see the light? And they said, yeah, we see the light. So then I flashed that light onto the mirror and that light reflected off the mirror 
and Don to the other mirror and it lit up the room. And I said, okay, are the mirrors doing anything? And first they said no. And I said, actually, they're doing something, but they're doing what God created them to do. I said, Is, how many sources of light do you see? And at first they said three. And I said, no, look at it again. And uh, there was only one source of light. It was from my flashlight. The mirrors were just reflecting that light. So as image bearers of God, we are reflecting God's image um, in much the same way. But we manifest that image in uh, different ways. So I use another analogy from light, uh, which is the sun. And, you know, if, if uh, you know, at nighttime when the sun is not out and maybe there's no moonlight, you can't really see anything. Or if you can see things, the colors are muted and things like that. But when the sun is up, you can see everything. And so if we put, you know, uh, five different women in, in the same area, uh, what happens is, is that the light that they reflect, the sunlight that they reflect, actually reveals their individual physical features. And so I think of this as an analogy. It's not perfect. We shouldn't think of it as identical. But this is sort of a way of thinking about how the image of, of God in man reflects off of us, because it's not going to reflect off of us in the same way. It's going to reflect off of us in independent ways based on how God created us to be. So one of those features of the image of God would be, for example, the capacity for knowledge. But we're finite creatures, so we don't actually have a capacity for all knowledge in and of ourselves. So Colleen may be knowledge, not knowledgeable in something different from what I'm knowledgeable in. And where I'm knowledgeable, um, I'm still limited. We're both limited in our knowledge. So I may know some things about philosophy, but I don't know all things about philosophy. But this is, some, this is a knowledge that I have that maybe Colleen doesn't have. So as Christians, we're also said to have identities in Christ, and this is in a relational sense. It doesn't change our identities, and that's one thing that Rachel wants to say is that our identity in Christ actually changes your personality, for example. Um, but there's this great sermon by uh, Kim Riddlebarger, which I actually uh, link in the, the notes that, Colleen, you're going to link in the show notes. Um, and he points out that our identity in Christ doesn't change our identities. It just gives our identities a new significance. So, you know, that's, that's really more of how we should be think of, thinking of our identities. One, we are image bearers of God. Two, the way that image manifests in each of us is in an independent way, and we are all different uh, the manifestations of his image are all different um, in varying degrees, even though we have common traits, right? There's still common traits between us, but there's also differences. So as individuals, our identity manifests in, in us in an albeit corrupted way. So we're not perfect, right? Um, we have both positive and ne negative aspects of our identity. You may be an, an extrovert, for example, but... Um, have a difficult time not gossiping, right? So gossiping would be a destructive or negative aspect of, of that part of your identity. 
And all that means is, is that that's an opportunity for, at least for the Christian, that's an opportunity for, for sanctification. But there's also positive ways that we can look at our identity. I think of my friend Stacy. She has a particular fondness for tea parties. And so she hosts the ladies' tea party every year, and she has a great knowledge about how to do a, you know, legitimate high tea. And that's one way in which her identity will actually manifest. You might be really good at mathematics. Um, I believe Ashley Glasswick is a math teacher. Yes, she is. Yeah. So that's one way that that her identity manifests is, is in being really good at mathematics. And so she might teach, teach math to, you know, to school age children. So at any rate, when, when we think of our identity, first of all, we have one, right? Um, We're, we're all persons that's inextricably bound to our being image bearers. The way that manifests is variously independent between each person that makes us unique, that separates us out as individuals. And, Some of that we can know just by exploring our likes and dislikes or skills and even our personality. There's lots of people who don't like those personality tests, but um, if they're used correctly, they can be a tool. And so you can explore things about your identity that, um, you know, maybe you didn't know about yourself or you can explore those those things that are of interest to you and and build skills and things like that. And paradoxically, this is the interesting thing because Rachel Jankovic wants to be able to say that as a Christian we're supposed to serve others and this is certainly true. I agree with her on that. The paradoxical thing about learning what your own identity is is that you build empathy for others simply because of your own self-awareness. Um, like my friend Stacy, who likes to do tea parties. I don't particularly like tea parties, and actually I, I hated attending them for a very long time. But once I realized my own identity and where my own interests are and likes and dislikes, I could actually look at the tea party that she would put on, and I would say, you know what, I love that she loves doing this. And so I could go to her tea party and I could enjoy it because I knew that that was something that she felt good about and she felt good doing and she was very good at. And so you can actually build empathy with others and and serve others in that way by being able to understand uh, your own identity and having that self-awareness. That was really, really helpful. (laughs) Everything you said right there. Oh, good. I agree. I think sometimes, um, and and certainly I do think this is explicitly in the book, You Who, but sometimes we see in certain Christian circles that there is um, sort of a superstition, I guess I'm going to say, against looking into your own personality and trying to understand um, who you are, what you're like, your likes and dislikes, your thought processes, and those sorts of things. And um, and I think in this book, there are some ways that she explicitly says that we shouldn't be spending our time on that and that we should, um, be finding our identity elsewhere. And, um, that can be pretty problematic. Um, I, I want to move into, um, one of the things that is, um, an underlying problem in, um, what is said in this book. And then, um, some of it is explicitly said, not just underlying it's said outright. Um, and this is moving into theology. Um, you talked, um, a little bit in your article, Carrie, um, 
about the way that Rachel uses the terms obedience and obey. I'm going to read a quote from your article. Jankovic uses the term obedience and obey approximately 95 times. Variations of the term faith occur 70 times, but roughly 12 of those instances appear to be orthodox uses of the term. In the remaining 58 uses, they carry the weight of obedience, or more precisely, a faithfulness of your own personal effort. This is significant. So can you tell our listeners and tell us a little bit, why is this significant? Yeah. So from a theological standpoint, um, the most immediately significant thing is the nature of sanctification. Is it monergistic or synergistic? Now, uh, I would say that there's, there's a lot that goes along with those two terms. They're pretty loaded. Um, so I've included uh, several resources to lessons and sermons from wonderful teachers uh, like Chris Cahey and Lee Irons and Todd Bordeaux of, of Glory Cloud Podcast. Um, and I'm going to just let them do the heavy lifting on it because, well, that's, that's what they do and they do it best. Plus, I don't think that I could actually explain it all in this, you know, in, in the time that we have. Um, but it's a question of who's in charge of sanctification. Is it you or is it God? So actually what, what I want to sort of bring this home to in a way that I hope resonates with the audience is to explain my own uh, reaction to, to learning these things. So many women have already told me, um, and this is definitely the sense that I got from reading Rachel's book as well, was this sense of overwhelm of what God requires of us. So this isn't the general overwhelm of life, right? Um, and that can and does occur. But this is an overwhelm that I can't tolerate uh, the burden of God's requirements for righteousness. And Reformed theology doesn't actually teach this sense of burden, um, and so this is why I've, I've linked all of these resources um, in those notes is so that you can go learn why Reformed theology doesn't, uh, isn't burdensome and why sanctification isn't this, this really weighty thing. But women, women who sense that there's something wrong with this book are experiencing cognitive dissonance. And so I want to explain my own process of coming out of this thinking because I, uh, many years ago, I was in a non-denominational church, which really liked Doug Wilson. And so my coming out of this cognitive dissonance went something like this. I would be studying something, say, on biblical womanhood. And and I was being told from a Reformed perspective what biblical womanhood is not. And so they would say something like, well, biblical womanhood is not X, Y, or Z. And then I would ask a question, still being informed by, you know, these erroneous views of sanctification. I would ask, well, what about A, B, or C? And the response was always, nope, that's wrong. It's not in Scripture. And I would say, well, what's correct? And they would say, just one, two, and three. That's it. So imagine this being an unshackling, okay? Legalism, gnomism, moralism, neonomianism, all of it binds you up in man-made laws, even if it's called God's law. And sometimes, I mean, they do actually inject God's law into it. That's what makes it so confusing. But Christ unshackles you from this. So 
you feel a bit naked because you're accustomed to the shackles and you think the shackles are a normal part of Christian life. And you might concede that you uh, were wearing the wrong shackles, but you're still looking for new shackles. And this is not how the gospel works. You're completely free of the shackles. And this doesn't mean you run off in sin. This is why Paul said, may it never be, right? Instead, you don't need the shackles because God changes the affections and desires of your heart to walk with Christ freely and in faith, and that as such, you are walking according to the will of God without the shackles. It's literally the difference between laboring as a slave versus laboring as a free man. And there's this really great quote from from Lee Irons, and I've mentioned it before, and I'm determined to make it go down in history. Uh, But he's talking about this idea of covenant of works and why it's so dangerous to deny the covenant of works. And this is definitely something that uh, Doug Wilson does, and you can see this in Rachel's book. But Lee says, when you're not careful with your words in defining them properly and precisely, it confuses your mind. And then pretty soon you can end up confusing the gospel itself. And if you deny the covenant of works, you're tearing down the structure that the house is built on for understanding the works of Christ and as his meritorious work that secures the eschatological reward for his people. So by denying the covenant of works, you're actually taking away the structure necessary for Christ to actually uh, impute righteousness for us on our behalf so that we can enjoy this enjoy our restored relationship with God and not be burdened uh, by by works of the law, which is what you end up getting. Um, if you do that, you end up shackling yourself to to the law again. I wanted to mention real quick because Carrie keeps referring to some resources that she's linked and Carrie has put together a wonderful list of resources. Everything that she's mentioned is on there on her website specifically for this episode. And I am linking that in the episode notes. So everything she said, um, the sermon by Kim Riddlebarger, some people think probably you're doing a sermon by a woman. No, he's a man. <laughs> um, and, and anything else that she has mentioned, you know, Carrie, one of, one of the things that you actually, you quote this in your article, In uh, you talk about a conversation on Facebook, um, Rebecca Womble, who's been on our podcast before, I believe it was on her uh, Facebook, or, or it was in regards, it was in regards to her um, review of this book, because she also wrote one, and this quote just, wow, I mean, really says so much, but um, Rachel said within this conversation, where I talk about obedience, I am assuming obedience as the fruit of faithfulness in the life of a believer. And even though she goes on to say, not suggesting the means by which we should save ourselves, um, just right there, obedience as the fruit of faithfulness. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. like saying, you know, faithfulness is the fruit of faithfulness. Really, we've got some, we have some foundational errors here. Yes. Yeah, the fruit of faithfulness, that phrase, the fruit of faithfulness is not found in scripture. Faithfulness is a fruit of the spirit. And that's the whole point is that in the Christian life, you know, it's in the scripture says we're going to be known by our fruits. Well, if all if our fruits are fruits of the spirit, then it's God working in our lives and and doing the active part um, himself and and those manifest 
in ways such as faithfulness. Faithfulness is, is certainly a consequence of that, but that's not our working that out. That's the spirit working that out in us. There's a, there's a subject object confusion here. Um, and so, you know, what, what she's talking about is your effort towards your own sanctification, whereas sanctification is an effort of the spirit and, and it's a gift of, of faith. So our obedience is actually in living by faith and, and believing that we're free from the, from the law um, as a means of, of works-based righteousness. I mean, that doesn't, we don't want to cross over to the line of antinomianism because God's moral will does matter. But where is that effort coming from? Is it coming from the spirit working in us or is that coming from our own bootstrapping our faith? Yeah, and let me just quickly read Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 35. Um, just as a reminder, we've got a whole episode on sanctification, and we talk about law and gospel and covenant theology, but what is sanctification? Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. When we are obedient, it is actually the fruit of sanctification, and sanctification is a work of God's free grace. Yep. I'm noticing actually some some significant overlap in this conversation as well with our recent episode where we talked about the lordship controversy. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm thinking about this uh, quote that we read a few minutes ago um, from your article, Carrie, where you're talking about how often the term obedience and faith are essentially conflated and yes. how she's using the term faith to really mean obedience and signal obedience. And that is um, part of the issue that went on in the Lordship controversy. But, um, you know, I, I'm just noticing as we're having this conversation that the reason these things have uh, a lot of the same terminology in common is because ultimately they boil down to that underlying root of legalism and of earning salvation versus Mm -hmm. trusting in Christ alone as the only one who could earn it. Right. Yeah. Well, and Jay Gresham Machen is so famous for saying, I'm so thankful for the act of obedience of Christ. There's no hope without it. And that's absolutely true. You know, uh, I think a lot of women who read books like this and it's not just uh Rachel's book but that you know there's there's just this overwhelming sense of I you know I can't do this I can't do all of these things quote to the glory of God which is uh a mantra that Jankovic <laughs> reinforces over and over and over in this book you know it's we're constantly reminded that we can't do it. And so our act of obedience is actually our faith and belief that Christ did it for us, right? Our faith is not the ground for our sanctification. Christ's work is the ground for our sanctification. And so that's where it gets confused. And I actually was, th- when you were talking earlier, I was thinking about um, that quote from Jay Gresham Machen. Mm-hmm. One of the things that you talk about, and this fits right into this conversation that we're talking about here, is the term covenant faithfulness. And we have a lot of gals that are new to covenant theology, and they're thinking, well, that, that sounds good to me. Maybe that, that sounds reformed, covenant faithfulness, but it's not. Mm-hmm. In fact, some of the quotes that you had from the book, I kept thinking about Norman Shepard, yeah. um, who's um, kind of seen as a father of federal vision, which we've talked about on this podcast. And so 
explain to our audience why covenant faithfulness is not a Reformed um, way of thinking. Right. So Reformed theology is very well known for its covenant theology, um, and we need covenant theology. That is a good thing. But uh, what what the word covenant means and what the word faithfulness means in the term covenant faithfulness is not what we what is taught in Reformed theology. And there's um, one of the resources that um, that I've linked to. It's from Lee Irons. It's called. It's a video lecture, and uh, Lee Irons is is great. He's very easy to understand. Um, this video is called "The Righteousness of God and the New Perspectives of Paul," and he actually goes through and explains why uh, why this term covenant faithfulness doesn't actually mean what what you might think it means, right? Faithfulness is is a fruit of the spirit. We're called to live by faith. This is certainly a cornerstone of Reformed theology. But what they're actually talking about um, in terms of faithfulness is actually our being faithful to the Mosaic Covenant. So they point back to the Mosaic Covenant. They sort of redefine what that means. And so that breaks down everything that that Christ came and did. And so Lee Irons, I think, does a much better job at explaining it. And so I highly recommend that video. But yeah, just because, and this is this is one of the, the problems that you run into with any sort of um, false doctrine is they borrow a lot of uh, jargon and, and terminology from, uh, from true doctrine in order to um, undergird it with their false definitions, and that's how it can get confused. It's interesting. I we are talking about that covenant faithfulness and what we can do, and you know how we really we can't keep the terms of the covenant. And covenant faithfulness is not even something that we can do. We're not capable. Um, what this sort of leads into in the book is an idea of denying yourself and not allowing yourself any. Um, I'm going to say sort of pleasures, um, not focusing on yourself, not being interested in your own uh, desires. And ultimately, I think this is sort of a low-key version of asceticism or maybe even not low-key, maybe pretty overt. Um, And I know that uh, you write a little bit about that, Carrie. Um, Tell us a little bit about what asceticism is and how you see that emphasized in the book. Yeah, Jankovic wants you to... um so she spends several several uh, chapters. In fact, I'm actually just citing the titles of those chapters. But she wants you to quote ask for less by being unconcerned for yourself, and um, have your personality changed and find your identity in other Christians and suppress what she calls the monkeys of your emotions. And she even spiritualizes body and health concerns. And I want to read a quote, and this is a rather lengthy quote, but I think it gets at the heart of of her message as far as what this asceticism is. I hope that I can I can draw out why this is erroneous. So this is from her chapter called Unconcerned. Quote, one of the most fundamental ways that the Christian faith disrupts the questions of philosophy about self and identity is actually by bypassing the whole issue. Who I am is not actually my concern. It is far from my responsibility in life's work to create and curate my life. 
for the Christian, the question of who am I is actually just another way of asking who is he. So when the searching question shifts from wanting to talk about me to wanting to pursue the glory of our everlasting God, we find that every question has an answer. The answer is so much bigger than we are. The foolish question, what is the essential me, will leave us in doubt. If you decide that you are, in your essential self, a carefree carefree girl, then how will you deal with heavy burdens in life? You will believe that they are literally killing you. Heavy burdens are fundamentally opposed to who you are. You have to escape to live. You have to leave your burdensome kids or your husband, anything to find yourself. Just think about that for a moment. Self-rescue takes precedence over everything else because you have allowed yourself to believe that you are actually being murdered by your situation. This is a very common story. It is a life crisis that we are familiar with, but we don't often hear people identify it as a philosophical problem. It comes out in little short blurts. I, can't, I just can't live like this. I feel lost. I don't know what to do anymore. I have to get out. I don't know who I am anymore. We hear the can't, the quote can't, quote feel, can't, uh, quote don't know. But what we should be noticing is the I. The person believes, this person believes, they know who they are and that this situation they are in is inconsistent with their person. They believe that they know and understand their own potential and limitations and so so well that they are fit to make the decision. They, in essence, cannot live anymore in such a... uh, opposed to their essence situation. They must sacrifice anything to protect their perceived self, but do they actually know themselves this well and in this way? No. That is why the other side of such selfish stories are never happily ever after. They can't walk out on their children or their vows or their family and then find themselves in a new Eden of happiness. They actually don't know much at all about themselves about what they can do, about how they can live, or where they should be. In contrast to this, a Christian who is pursuing the glory of God is not threatened by changes. Because we are becoming ourselves through responsive obedience to God, we do not need either ourselves or our situations to be settled because our whole lives are fixed on God and He will not change, end quote. So the reason why I bring up this, uh, this paragraph and I want to talk about it in terms of asceticism, is this, this, this chapter called Unconcerned, she, she's wanting you to say you should be unconcerned for who you are. And then she follows that up with, and then she follows that up with um, a chapter on asking for less and a chapter called Lost Boys, which is vilifying the concept of the self, and a chapter called Being Made New, which is a, a denial of personality. Uh, um, she even has she has a chapter on the misunderstood princess, which I actually can appreciate her uh, sort of taking apart the the trope of our our being uh, daughters of a king. That was always annoying to me, but 
Um, you know, she, she vilifies emotions in the chapter called like so many monkeys. Um, and she also vilifies body image and health issues. And it all comes from this place, this place that we should be unconcerned for ourselves because she's literally saying that if you are concerned for yourself and you explore your identity, you're going to wind up probably divorcing your husband and abandoning your, abandoning your children in pursuit of this question. And that's not the way it works. <laughs> you know, my, my learning about my own identity actually informs how I can be a better uh, mother. Um, I'm divorced now, but if I were to ever get remarried, my knowing my identity would inform how I'm to be a good, you know, a good wife. In fact, when scripture talks about, you know, wives as being suitable helpers, we're not these prepackaged we're not these prepackaged women that you can pick up from Walmart, right? She's she does all the cooking and cleaning and bearing of children, right? We we don't all do the same thing. The way we parent right. our children, the way we mother our children is going to be a reflection of who we are. You know, I can come up with little thought experiments for my kids because I'm philosophical. <laughs> right. Um, so, we don't want to uh be so uh we, we, we don't want to sacrifice ourselves on the on on this altar of uh, doing things to the glory of God just because we're so afraid of it turning into this self idolatry. And by the way, I just want to say for your listeners out there that when Scripture is talking against uh, concepts of quote self love. Uh, what what it's talking about is more along the lines of narcissism. I mean, narcissism is toxic. It's completely focused on the self. You you don't have an ability to have empathy with others. You aren't thinking uh, you aren't thinking of being of service to others. It is literally everything that goes on outside of you. You take to be very self centered, and that's that's a toxic situation. And but only I think there's a there's a uh, a Christian reformed psychologist named Diane Langberg, another author I highly recommend, um, who has talked about narcissism. And I believe she said that only one to 3%, that might be a bit high, of the population actually has narcissistic personality disorder. So just because you are thinking, hmm, I'm really exhausted. I think I'd like to uh, do some of these self-care ideas like go take a bath or drink a glass of wine doesn't mean that you're narcissistic or that you're falling into this sin. And so where the asceticism comes in is by saying you should be so unconcerned that you need to reject all of these other things. And that's not what scripture tells us to do. In fact, especially when it comes to emotions, Christ experienced an entire gambit of both positive and negative emotions. And he didn't sin in that. So we can't be sinning by experiencing those, those positive and negative emotions. Now I wanted to give another example of how she has confused this, confused the issue about Christian identity. So her last sentence or her last couple of sentences here, she says, um, in contrast to this, a Christian who is pursuing the glory of God is not threatened by changes because we are becoming ourselves through responsive obedience to God. We do not need either ourselves or our situations to be settled because our whole lives are fixed on God and He will not change. So I want to correct that. 
that phrase right there and write it from a gospel-centered view. I would say a Christian, one who is being transformed by the power of the Spirit and living by faith, are not threatened by changes, though not being threatened doesn't mitigate the pain that we feel. Because our being in Christ brings new significance to our identity, then we can add Jankovic's phrasing, we do not need either ourselves or our situations to be settled because our whole lives are fixed on God and he will not change. So you can see how how reading this without having an, a, a good understanding of the theology behind it can be confusing because some of what she says is correct. She's just correct for the wrong reasons. And because she's correct for the wrong reasons, it puts a bad, it puts the emphasis on the wrong thing, which is this idea of uh, covenant faithfulness. You know, that that's actually a, a great um, kind of jumping off point for, we, we have two more things to get to, and this is really important to me, and I want to just briefly talk about Federal Vision, because, you know, in the Theology Gals group, we have very strong rules against anything connected to Federal Vision, and uh, several people, and I think Rachel maybe even in one of those Facebook conversations said, no, this isn't Federal Vision. And we've done two episodes on Federal Vision. I know that there are some people now distancing themselves from the label. Uh, but because of the episodes that we did, because of the yeah, um, Dewey Roberts book even, that there were things that I read here that are directly connected to it. And so some gals were upset that we wouldn't allow the book, Rachel's book to be promoted in the group. And they said, but there's no federal vision in it. Mm -hmm. And I'd really like you to address that because, oh, and let me also say that Rachel herself says that this is not a work of theology. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's deal with that right away. I mean, uh, it's not a work of theology. She says it's an application of it. So this is, this is an ironic statement to me because, you know, th think of it as putting on makeup, okay? You're taking your little sponge and you get your foundation and you're applying something to your face. You're not applying nothing, right? You're applying something. Jankovic wants to say that she's doing application. She's not doing theology. But what the heck is she applying? She's applying theology. So she can't escape the fact that this is, in fact, a work of theology. That's just a scapegoat. What I've learned about the federal vision thing and just being able to see it, I mean, there's two major things that I see in the book specifically that come from federal, federal vision. One is the covenant faithfulness thing, which we've already talked about. The other thing is this idea of unchanging essence, which uh, Dewey Roberts also talks about in his book. I have his book, um, and I also recommend that, uh, that the ladies out there get it. So, But there's this idea uh, that you have an unchanging essence, and this is actually a pagan idea. Um, it's a notion of this substance dualism, this idea that you have a temporal body and, a, and an eternal soul. So this is something that that Rachel says in her book. She says in her book, quote, this is our simple answer to all of this. We believe that we are made with a soul, 
We believe that our physical bodies are not the whole story. We have an identity that is spoken by God, sustained by God, and even our physical body replaces itself according to God's design. At the end of the day, we aren't merely mortal, but eternal beings. The Christian concept of the soul makes most of these questions irrelevant. The soul is not located in one place in your body. You may, you may get a leg amputated, but your soul stays with you. You sustain a, a brain injury, but your soul is not lost. You start with one soul, and it stays with you all the way until you die, and even then your soul goes on living. The essential you will never die. It is eternal. So um, I can't speak in terms of of essence because I don't think that the concept of essence is actually correct. But I really appreciate Roy Clauser's response to substance dualism. Roy Clauser is a uh, reformational philosopher. And this is what he says about this idea, um, again, of, of essence and the soul and dualism. He says, quote, many theists believe dualism to be taught in scripture. Thus, it is widely held that only the body dies while the soul never does, so that the body is not essential to being human. This view has been successfully challenged in recent years by Bible scholars who have shown that this popular view is derived from the influence of Greek philosophy rather than the Bible itself. Scripture does not view the body as merely an external, unnecessary shell for the soul. Neither is the promise of everlasting life based on the teaching that the soul is naturally immortal. Rather, the scripture, uh, the scriptural idea of everlasting life is that it is assured only by the promise of God, and that God promises, and what and that what God promises is the resurrection of the whole person, that is the resurrection of a new body at the day of judgment. End quote. So, other aspects of federal vision that get inferred from. Uh, her use of essence and substance dualism uh, on the philosophical side, and then also of covenant faithfulness on the theological side, is ramifications for other concepts like regeneration and grace and the order of salvation and those sorts of things. And, um, you know, I guess that's, that's a, a a rabbit hole that if somebody wants to be able to study, I would say get Dewey Roberts's book. Um, but it's there. Uh, now, Rachel can plausibly deny that federal vision isn't there or that covenant faithfulness isn't there because she doesn't use those buzzwords. But if you know what these things mean, then you can see that meaning coming out in her writing. And, and they are most certainly there. So, the final thing that we wanted to talk about was just that some of the ideas in this book are, are we think, risky in terms of opening the door for abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, can, can you talk a little bit about what you see as um, being the problems that might um, contribute to abusive situations? Right. So this is, this is really... Um, this is really, I think, what's what's important and why we can't just let uh, heretical things sort of stay out there. There's there's a really uh, there's a very real consequence for these teachings um, on people, and so I'm going to read a couple of quotes from books that I also have 
uh, linked on my on my notes page for this episode um, because this isn't me talking. This is uh, these are experts in their fields who know what they're talking about. So the first section I'm going to read is from a book called Who's Pulling Your Strings? Um, and the author's name is Dr. Harriet Breaker. And she says, when your identity is fuzzy and out of focus, you will feel alienated from yourself and from others. When you do not clearly present yourself to others and define your boundaries by setting appropriate limits, saying no, and standing up for your own rights, others will tend to project their notions of who you are or more more accurately of who they need you to be onto your identity. When you present yourself in the world with an ambiguous sense of identity, you invite others to shape you according to their needs and desires. This is what uh, Dr. Breaker calls the Rorschach phenomenon. People who have blurry identities and vanishing senses of self are fodder for the mill of manipulators. Over time, the participation in manipulative relationships merely weakens and erodes the victim's identity further and further. Without a strong, clear sense of your own identity, you are highly vulnerable and a near certain mark of manipulation. And then the other thing that I wanted to read was from a book called The Subtle Power of Spiritual Abuse. And this is by David Johnson and Jeff Van Vonderen. Um, And they're pointing out uh, in this section, they're talking about um, issues that people who have been spiritually abused struggle with. So they say that you will have a distorted sense of self-identity of yourself as a Christian. So they say, quote, people who have been spiritually abused tend to have a negative picture of self or a shamed-based identity. This can be seen in several ways. First, a lack of understanding or even awareness of New Testament texts that elaborate on our identity as new creations in Christ. Second, confusion between guilt and shame. Guilt is a valuable signal indicating a wrong or bad behavior. Shame is an indictment on you as a person. You experience guilt when you do a wrong behavior. Guilt is a good spiritual nerve ending causing you to right wrong behavior. You feel shame when you've done nothing wrong. You feel defective as a human being and like a third-rate Christian undeserving of God's blessings and acceptance. Uh, third, shame is the, pri- is the prime motivator of behavior. In other words, the dilemma of your negative picture of self can only be solved by good behavior. And fourth, a high need to hang on to, negative, to a negative picture of self in order to explain negative behaviors. This is true of spiritual systems that teach or insinuate that even though you are saved, you're still worthless before God just a sinner saved by grace, or a worm and not a person. And this message can come off subtly. So they use an example um, of a popular chorus in, I don't know if this is a Christian hymn, but it's, it's apparently a song that has been used before. So these are lyrics in that song, and it goes like this. It says, I am so glad that Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. I am so glad that Jesus loves me. Jesus loves even me. And they emphasize even. This song insinuates that Jesus loves a lot of people, but loving you was really a stretch. 
Romans 5, 6, however, indicates that everyone was equally in need of his love. Look at Paul's prayer for everyone whom Jesus loves in Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, for whom every family in heaven in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Holy Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. And they close out by saying, God didn't even love you. He so loved you. And that's that's goes towards this, this overwhelming sense that you get from reading books like this, because the overwhelming sense is, I'm not good enough for God. And that's not the message. And so if you know who you are, if you have a sense of self, then you can spot the manipulation. You can spot the bad theology. You can spot the abusive situations. In fact, one of the things that John Calvin says is that a true sense of self and a true sense of God are mutually connected. So you can't learn about God uh, without learning about yourself, and you can't learn about yourself without learning about God. And that goes for both our sin, uh, you know, the negative destructive things in our life, and that also goes for the fruits of the Spirit, our sanctification, the positive things about our life. So if you have a distorted sense of self, right, John Calvin's, the, the opposite of John Calvin's statement is true. If you have a distorted sense of self, you're going to have a distorted sense of God. And if you have a distorted sense of God, you have a distorted sense of the gospel. And, you know, the, the other thing is that we have a tendency also in spiritually abusive situations can be, it can be between leadership and members. It can be between members and members. It can be members spiritually abusing the leadership. It can go any one of those ways. And it depends upon a number of things, but one of those things is identity. Um, Now, in the case of spiritual abuse from leadership, which tends to be the way it goes just because leadership has a position of power, um, it's important to know that leadership, um, any sort of leadership, any sort of authority figure can actually sin against you. They can go against um, or violate their own duties. And this is something that is not normally talked about. But in the Westminster Larger Catechism, question number 130, we see what the sins are of what we call superiors. So this would just be anybody who who has authority over you. So this could be the authority of parents. So these are ways that parents can sin against their kids. These are ways that church leadership can can sin against members. Um, These are ways that various authority figures outside of the church could sin against you. And this is what the larger catechism says in question 130. It says, "What what are the sins of superiors? Answer, the sins of superiors are besides the neglect of the duties required of them, and inordinate seeking of themselves, their own glory, ease, profit, or pleasure. They're prohibited from the following. 
uh, commanding things that are unlawful, which often comes in these uh, legalistic situations, uh, not or not in the power of inferiors to perf- to perform. Um, so they may be asking you to do something you can't actually do. Counseling, encouraging, or favoring uh, that which is evil, dissuading, discouraging, or discountenancing uh, that which is good, correcting them unduly. This also feeds into legalism. Uh, careless, exposing, or leaving them to wrong, temptation, and danger, provoking them to wrath. Your leadership, your authority figures, your parents shouldn't be provoking you to wrath. Um, Or in any way dishonoring themselves or lessening their authority by an unjust, indiscreet, rigorous, or remiss behavior. So even people who have authority positions can actually diminish their own authority by committing these sins. And spiritual abuse also tends to be a violation of Christian liberty, which we also find in the confession, uh, Westminster Confession, chapter 20. And um, I, I won't read that just because it's pretty long. But, you know, essentially, this goes back to what I, what I said about matters of adiaphora. If the scripture isn't explicit in a, in a prohibition um, of something, so we don't have an explicit command to, uh, you know, to not sin in a particular way, right? If it's not addressed in scripture, it, it tends to be understood as a matter of indifference, meaning that uh, that is left to your Christian conscience. And, and we trust the fact that God is working in your life through the spirit and is informing your conscience and of those decisions. And so those issues are not issues that, that uh, those who have authority over you have a right to bring up. So one one question that came up in the group that that I thought was a good question that should be addressed was the question was was basically um, in relation to Rachel Hollis's book. Somebody had said that they felt like Rachel Jankovic's book was was really a good um, alternative to Rachel Hollis's book, mm-hmm. and so I wanted to sort of give a little breakdown. Uh, difference between the two, but also how the gospel changes uh, it changes both of those messages. Okay, so Rachel Hollis's book, and I'm borrowing her titles just to to give this these uh, this illustration. So Rachel Hollis has those two books, and it essentially sounds something like this: "Girl, stop apologizing for not washing your face, but seriously, go wash your face," right? Rachel Jankovic's book is more like, girl, get down on your knees and apologize for not washing your face. Now go wash your face to the glory of God. (laughs) I missed a spot and another one. You didn't quite get it. Nope, you're not good enough. Don't don't stop. Don't don't you know you're doing this for the glory of God? Mm -hmm. Make sure you do it while you're not looking at your own face, though. Right. Don't look at your own face. This is this is how the gospel would change those statements. Girl. Christ washed your face. He's also given you the cleanser and the desire to wash your face, but he will be with you through every part of life. So walk with him. And when you forget to wash your face, he will forgive you and renew your desire and ability to wash your face. Wash your face freely without condemnation and with the security that you are his. That's the difference between those, those two books and why they're both wrong. 
Amen. Wow. I love Amen. that. You know, everything that we've talked about today, um, well, some of the things Carrie digs into more in her in her article, and her article is pretty long, but also in Theology Gals, we're, we never have the time to thoroughly deal with any subject, and so we really encourage you to read her article, and then we're also linking the wonderful um, list that she did of links and resources and specifically for this, and so we encourage you to go and and read more, study more, some of the things that we talked about today, including like the sermon on, ident- you know, the Kimberlebarger sermon, for instance, um, you know, if these are things that you're trying to understand. But one thing that we want our audience to understand is why we think this is a big deal. And we recognize that we have people on this show all the time that we have uh, differences on some secondary issues. And, but there are things that we think uh, kind of go beyond that and what we're comfortable with. And so it was important for us to explain why, in regards to this book, why we feel that way. I just want to second what you said about um, checking out the show notes um, for our listeners. Um, I know there was a lot of vocabulary in this um, episode and um, highly, highly recommend please read Carrie's article. It is lengthy and really full of um, deep, good information to chew on. Um, she's done a good job really um, bringing out these nuances that are difficulties um, with the book. And, you know, take it slow as you have um, things that you're not sure what they mean. Um, look them up. Use the resources that we're going to have in the show notes. Um, and this is how we learn and grow. These are difficult um, and complex topics. And, um, you know, some of what we've talked about stretches my own mind. So um, don't let that scare you. Read, um, grow, and use it as a good opportunity. Yeah. Amen to that. Carrie, thank you so much for just spending this time with us and being able to dig into some of these topics and answer our questions. And uh, sure. we, we do encourage you to check out Carrie's podcast and her website. Every, everything we've mentioned will be linked in the episode notes. And then those specific resources will be on the resource sheet that Carrie's put together for this episode. So thank you for joining us and we'll be back next week.